Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. Today we have a solo episode, which is going to close out the season two of the podcast and 2023, the year 2023. As a preliminary note, I wanted to make the announcement that Free Range has launched a Patreon page. So uh, the podcast had some startup support from the program on law, communities, and the environment at UVA Law. But right now, as going forward, we are on our own. It does cost something to run the podcast, actually. Um, It's not entirely free. Mostly, uh, we need funds to pay for a sound engineer to kind of keep the quality at some reasonable level. So the goal of the Patreon page is to provide a way for listeners like you to support the podcast. The way this is going to work is that members will sign up to pay $2 per episode. Um, Obviously not a huge amount of money, but something. With 100 members or so, that will be enough to keep the podcast going. So um, if you'd like to become a member, you can go to patreon.com. And if you don't have one already, you can sign up for an account. And then what you do from the account is there's a little search bar where you search for uh, what are called creators and you can type in free range with Mike Livermore and you should find the podcast and you can go ahead and sign up if you'd like. I've committed to offering a new season if we reach 100 members. Uh, That's kind of the magic number. Um, Now, the idea is the podcast will still be available for everyone in the world uh, who is interested for free on all the standard podcast channels. So what will be special for Patreon members is they will have the satisfaction of knowing that um, you, if you are one, are keeping the podcast going. Um, and so, you know, that, that you have that satisfaction. That'll be, that'll be your reward for, uh, for, uh, for joining. And just, you know, for my part, I've been having a great time doing the podcast in the last couple of years. It's a great use of my time. I interact with fantastic, intelligent people who have lots of interesting things to say. So um, if there are enough folks who feel like they get enough you know, value listening to the podcast to contribute a couple of dollars per episode, I would uh, personally be thrilled to have the chance to stay at it. Today's episode is in memory of Dick Stewart, who was a longtime law professor at NYU who died this past November. Dick was an extremely influential scholar. Um, He worked in the areas of environmental law and administrative law primarily, and he really profoundly shaped both of those fields over the course of his long and illustrious career. He was also an important mentor to me in particular during law school. During my 1L year, my first year of law school, I uh, spent the intercession break, uh, the break between the first two semesters, as his research assistant. Uh, I'd been um, recommended to do that by another faculty member. And he put me on a project where I was helping to pull together a scholarship, uh, basically doing a literature review for a new field that he was in the process of defining, which uh, he called global administrative law. He worked with Benedict Kingsbury, another faculty member at NYU on a project on global administrative law for many years. Um, so I did that project with Dick in December of, 20, of 2003. <laughs> um, and so uh, almost exactly 20 years ago. I really loved that first project. It was fascinating to explore how scholars were reckoning with the growing power of global institutions like the World Trade Organization, and to see Dick and Benedict working together to synthesize these disparate voices into a coherent research program. It really sparked my interest in law scholarship, and it gave me some hope that this was something that I might actually be able to do. 
Um, he also supervised my first piece of legal scholarship or scholarship of any kind for that matter, which was um, in that global administrative law spirit, I did a paper on the um, an institution called the Codex Elementarius, <laughs> which, um, which is a great name. And um, in any case, the Codex is an international food safety body. And I studied its deliberations and how... Um, changes in the global trade system and uh, actually the incorporation of the Codex Elementarius into the global trade regime um, uh, changed how deliberations worked in the institution. So it's kind of about the po politics of this institution and how the politics, external politics and internal politics interacted with each other over kind of an important period in its history. Um, well, 20 years is a long time. I mean, it is, it is a long time. It's not a long time, I guess. Um, depends on your perspective, but it's a good marker. And a lot has changed since, since I was a 1L law student. So in this podcast, I'm going to reflect a bit on that, kind of through the lens of Dick Stewart's scholarship and his particular place within environmental and administrative law within those fields. So when I kind of think back to that um, 20 years ago, and I think, you know, again, about, about these two fields and, and Dick Stewart and his work, I really note kind of two very substantial changes um, that have, that are kind of changes in the world that fund, really fundamentally changed the landscape on which environmental and administrative law live. So the first big change is the breakdown of any workable bipartisan coalition on environmental issues in the United States. Although this is something that's spreading around the world. We really saw it first in the U.S., um, but I think we're, we're starting to see this um, in other jurisdictions as well. Um, this is something that had been a long time coming, but it was probably during the Obama administration that it really came to fruition. Uh, and we saw it kind of, I think, really operative with the death of um, major climate legislation on essentially a party line vote. Um, and that was really the last time we contemplated anything, any kind of bipartisan climate action. Um, and so this new environmental law regime, which we, we have now, uh, which is illustrated by the Inflation Reduction Act and the Supreme Court's West Virginia v. EPA decision, which we'll talk about a little bit in this podcast. I think that regime is really a direct consequence of this breakdown. And, you know, Dix, Dick Stewart embodied as well as anybody did the prior consensus, what existed kind of before this breakdown. He was a loyal Republican. Uh, in fact, he served uh, an important role in the administration of George H.W. Bush. He was um, the assistant attorney general in the Department of Justice in charge of what we call the Environmental and Natural Resources Division. So the role in the Department of Justice that's in charge of kind of prosecuting environmental crimes and, that, and the like. He, in that role, led the litigation team on the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Um, so this was a huge environmental catastrophe that happened and that was dominating kind of headlines at the time. And Dick helped and really led the negotiation for what at the time was a huge settlement with the company of a billion dollars. And um, during his time with the Bush administration, uh, Dick also worked uh, with other figures in the administration on the last major piece of bipartisan environmental legislation, at least arguably the last piece, um, which was the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments. 
And um, also at that time, and with Dick's help, the Bush administration was in the process of negotiating the 1992 Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is obviously a huge, important um, piece of international law that deals with, with environmental issues. So that was a really different time. Uh, in the 1990s and into the 2000s, Dick was not a rarity uh, as a kind of reasonable pro-environment Republican. Now, nowadays, that group is all but extinct. The surviving members of the old guard have really been forced into a stark choice where they can either preserve their party credentials, um, and that usually means proclaiming loyalty to the leader of the party these days, who's Donald Trump. And it means ditching, at least in public, their pro-environmental views. Or the alternative is to just kind of be expelled into the political wilderness. They could join the Democratic Party, which they might disagree with on other issues, or just not be part of politics in any um, really serious way. So that's a uh, that's one major shift that's, that, that's happened over the last 20 years. The other is the transformation of the global order. So my colleague, Paul Stephen, and I on a recent podcast talked about the breakdown of what Paul characterizes as international liberalism. And international liberalism is a set of kind of views and institutions that built up over many years and kind of its core is made up of strong international institutions. Um, one, promotion of free trade, which is another important component, as well as the spread and promotion of human rights. And um, when in, in 2003, when Dick was working on the global beginning, the global administrative law project off the ground, it was very difficult to see or foresee developments like Brexit or the stagnation of the World Trade Organization. Things like the spread of right-wing nationalism, protectionism, public opposition to uh, immigration, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. All of these things were very difficult to foresee. At the time, the world looked like it was on this steady, maybe even fast track, kind of moving towards economic and political integration and maybe even unity. That was, that was the way things looked right up until the point where um, everything started to fall apart. Now, in hindsight, again, as of 2003, some of the cracks in the regime of international liberalism were already showing. So when I started law school at New York University in 2003, of course, the, the terrorism attacks on uh, September 11th were still very fresh in memory. And the U.S. invasion of Iraq, um, which turned out to be disastrous, had just begun and was, you know, just getting started, um, the invasion and occupation. The lead up and execution of the invasion and occupation, um, the trumped up weapons of mass destruction, the, you know, the, the rhetoric around the coalition of the willing, uh, the human rights violations at Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib, the insurrection in Iraq and the resulting instability. All of this was going to do tremendous damage to the legitimacy of the United States and ultimately the international order that um, the U.S. helped to build and maintain. But, you know, again, this had 
kind of gotten started in 2003, but the consequences, what this all was going to look like was uh, much, we're, we're just not very clear at all at the time. Uh, what we thought what we were studying at that time was the dawn of a new age of cooperation where the important legal questions would involve, really would revolve around how best to cope with the new power that was being executed at this transnational level. So there was most a concern with the declining sovereignty of the state, the transfer of power and authority to these institutions that weren't embedded in the same legal culture, that didn't have the same uh, surround of institutions like, you know, courts doing judicial review or transparency requirements or so on. So it was this concern about moving decision-making off to this, you know, the international level, transnational level. So everything looked very stable. The international liberal order that was constructed, you know, really out of the wreckage of World War II and which had outlasted the Soviet Union and international socialism and all of its associated institutions. Um, it seemed that what was happening is we were transitioning towards a really truly global regime. Um, and so it looked like a dawn. It looked like the dawn of this new global regime, but it turned out to be more like a twilight. Um, you know, uh, the fallout from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the 2008 financial crisis, the failure of climate negotiations, and then the rest of it, Brexit and Trump and right-wing nationalism and the invasion of Ukraine and everything else was all on the horizon. And of course, we didn't, we didn't see any of that. Um, we didn't know that any of that was, was what the future held. Now, obviously, this is a little bit of a downer, <laughs> those two observations, and there have been positive developments in the last 20 years as well. Uh, for example, there's been a massive and underappreciated reduction in global poverty. There's been progress on social issues like marriage equality and, of course, extraordinary technological progress um, in areas like biotech and artificial intelligence. But the political agenda that Dick Stewart embodied, the kind of moderate republicanism, pro-environment, pro-market at the same time, favoring international order, trade, and cooperation, that has suffered immense setbacks. And the decline of that agenda has had real consequences for environmental law and policy. So dialing things back even further, um, in 1975, which is you know almost 50 years ago now, Dick published a paper which was his most important work, his most influential work. Uh, the paper was called The Reformation of American Administrative Law. It's one of the most cited and influential law review articles really ever, um, certainly in the area of administrative laws, this kind of field-defining work. So in that article, Dick describes several changes that were happening at that time that were fundamentally transforming the relationship between courts, interest groups, and the government. And it's a long article, it's complicated, there's a lot going on, but um, the changes that he described include new rules on things like access to courts, um, the rise of litigation by environmentalists and other groups, um, changing roles for interest groups and courts and agencies and the changing political dynamics within agencies and again, the relationship between agencies and courts. So in my own work, I've argued that this reformation that Dick described came about in part due to the partisan dynamics of the time. So what has happened as of you know, circa 1975, and actually, of course, he was writing the paper even earlier than that, what now in retrospect we see is that the country had entered a period uh, that you could call a period of divided government. 
that was the kind of the partisan structure that we were kind of entering into. And what that meant is that we were going to have essentially Republican presidents, so Republican control of the White House, starting with Nixon, basically uninterrupted, except for um, Jimmy Carter, who was actually kind of a peculiar Democrat also, quite conservative compared to many of his colleagues. Um, And so you had a period of Republican dominance of the White House, but Democratic mostly dominance of Congress. And so that's the period of divided government um, that that we were just at the beginning of experiencing when Dick wrote his paper, um, Reformation of American Administrative Law. And that would, of course, last through 1992 with Bill Clinton's election. And so, um, and, and what was going on with the courts at that time is that there was kind of, over the course of this period of divided government, a gradual transition from the, like on who, who the judges were. You basically had um, New Deal holdovers at the beginning of the Nixon administration. Um, and of course, you know, folks had been appointed by, uh, by the late, you maybe call the late New Deal period or Great Society period. So, you know, basically these pretty, um, pretty uh, democratically oriented judges. And you had this transition over that, you know, period of divided government toward the judges that were, you know, appointed by Nixon and then, and then Reagan. So there was a real shift in the judiciary over this period. Um, and so what, in the early part and the portion of this era that Dick was characterizing in his paper was really focused on, or at least that was, that's my argument, how you were seeing this interaction between the New Deal holdovers who are still in control of the courts in the 1970s, dealing with agencies under Richard Nixon. And um, where you had shifted into this regime where you were going to have kind of Republican leadership and and really serious Republican leadership, quite a different party, quite different from Eisenhower even. And so what kind of was happening is you had the Republican presidency, you had agencies that still had mostly New Deal style Democrats in them. Uh, You had a Congress that was, you know, democratically controlled and was even kind of pursuing an, an ever more aggressive regulatory agenda in areas like environmental and safety and public health. And, and that was the dynamic where the courts were kind of interposing themselves over agencies more, being more aggressive in, in their review, uh, opening the courthouse doors to more types of interest groups that were maybe traditionally affiliated with the Democratic Party. And, um, and this was leading to doctrinal changes in administrative law that, that Dick characterized. And, um, you know, this Reformation period um, kicked off a half century of fights over the role of agencies and courts. And all this is still a hot topic today. And so part of the reason why this paper is so important is because Dick really identifies these issues right, right at their beginning, right when they're starting to happen. So today, um, you know, in, in reflecting on Dick's work a little bit and just things in environmental law that are happening, I've been kicking around the idea for an article um, with kind of a partial uh, homage to this 1975 paper with the title, The Reformation of of U.S. Environmental Law or American Environmental Law. And, um, you know, what my view is that this reformation has been initiated by the political trends I was just describing, right? So this is the death of bipartisan cooperation on environmental issues, if not on everything, and the breakdown of the liberal international order. Uh, I'm not sure whether I'm going to end up (laughs) writing this paper or not. I currently have a book project that I'm focused on. 
Um, so we'll see about the paper, but I figured with the podcast uh, for the end of the year, I can at least sketch out the basic argument here. Um, and you know, this maybe will be the final final product, or maybe it will turn into a paper at some point. So the the basic claim of this environmental reformation of um, that we're experiencing now um, is that the kind of the sea change moment happened in 2022, the summer of. 2022. And there were two major developments in U.S. environmental law that happened that summer. So one was this case, West Virginia v. EPA, um, which in effect struck down an Obama-era effort to regulate greenhouse gas emissions and kind of forcefully articulates what uh, is referred to as the major questions doctrine. And what's happening in this case is, is again, really renegotiating the relationship between courts and agencies, um, where it seems as though we're going to see courts playing a much more aggressive role, dialing back the degree of their deference to agencies. And, you know, especially given the conservative control over the Supreme Court, that's got a highly partisan dynamic. Um, so that's West Virginia v. EPA. And, and I had a podcast earlier this season with Lisa Heinzerling, where we talk about uh, that, that case, if you're, if you're interested in hearing a little bit of the kind of the, the legal background of how we got to West Virginia v. EPA and putting it in the context of um, some prior uh, decisions by the, by the U.S. Supreme Court. The other big development in the summer of 2022 was the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a bit of a misnomer, as everyone knew at the time. It's or not entirely, but importantly, uh, a major piece of climate legislation. So this was, in the United States, as far as I can think of, the first, certainly the first major one-party environmental bill, where it was essentially... I think in that case, a fully party line vote. But we, uh, oh, environmental legislation just hasn't proceeded that way. Environmental legislation basically has been a bipartisan affair um, in the past. And so this is a really big, a really important uh, change from how environmental law, environmental statutes at least have been made in the past. And there are other differences in part, you know, maybe related to that. So one is that it's a spending package. It's not a kind of a regulatory uh, bill. Now, of course, a regulatory bill would have required more votes since the Democrats were really going to only be able to muster uh, enough to get over the 50 uh, vote mark in the Senate. They weren't going to be able to get over the 60 votes necessary to do substantive legislation, at least under the filibuster rule. And so, um, so that's an interesting uh, element of the dynamic. But it's also part of this broader shift in emphasis in environmental policy in the, in the U.S. towards something that we can refer to as industrial policy, um, which is a different way of thinking about how to do environmental regulation than we really have focused on in the past. So this, this is the sea change. This is the moment where we can really see a, a difference in, um, in environmental law in the U.S. And these are changes that have been in the works for a long time, but, you know, they kind of come really starkly into fruition in this summer of 2022. So how do we interpret this, this change? How do we put um, the summer of 22 <laughs> in uh, a little bit of context? So I'll make a couple different claims about how we should think about 2022 and how environmental law is being reformed um, in the United States. So one is to understand one important thing to, for context here is to understand what the new order 
I guess we could call it. The, the, the order that begins or comes to fruition in 2022, the, the, the reformed order, what it replaces. And um, a point that kind of bears emphasis here is that law, I think in general, but certainly environmental law in the U.S., kind of works through a, a kind of a process of accumulation, almost like a sedimentary process where the new law doesn't really replace the old law or the new stuff doesn't replace the old stuff. It kind of sits on top of the old stuff. It, it, it kind of gradually builds up over time. And um, sometimes you can wipe away an old regime. That is definitely possible. That's something that can happen. But that's kind of not the normal thing. Um, often it's this process of accretion over time. And this makes sense for many reasons, um, in part because people have reliance interests and in how the law works. We've structured our society and our institutions and our lives and our physical infrastructure around the old law. And if we were just constantly changing the old law all the time, it would be extraordinarily disruptive and very difficult to arrange our lives and make investments and make plans. And so we kind of have an expectation of continuity in the law. So uh, when new law comes along, we all kind of accept that there's going to be some new law. That's okay. That kind of fits. Um, but we expect that new law is going to kind of sit on top of the way things work. And, you know, the changes are going to be a little bit more gradual. It's not going to be kind of disruptive thing. We're going to just get rid of the law and have entirely new law. Again, it can happen, but it's not the normal way that things work. Um, and so we could think in the kind of broad history of U.S. environmental law that there's been this sedimentary or this accretive process where you have different kind of waves or different periods that are building on um, prior periods. And so there's a period where, you know, we're focused on things like national parks and conservation and, you know, resource management and forestry and, and those kinds of, um, those kinds of issues. And this is kind of in the mid 20th century, um, a, a period where you, you know, during the new deal, of course, we have this dam building stuff that's happening, right? So it's, it's a, it's law, it's certainly related to the environment, maybe is not exactly how we think of environmental law today, but that was a, a different paradigm. And it still, of course, operates. We still have natural resource regimes. We think about fisheries. We still have plenty of dams. Um, we still operate, you know, our forests and we still have national parks. And so there's all, so that all that, all those regimes still exist. And they've, of course, uh, evolved and changed over time. But that at the base, there is still this, you know, this kind of, of prior understanding because it's still with us, but it's, it's the institutions and infrastructure and the ways of thinking and so on that kind of came into being during, during this period of time. Um, okay, so that's one. And then we have, you know, later we have different um, kind of waves of environmental law and policy. And so there's the, you know, the, the big wave that comes in the, in the 60s and 70s with the first Earth Day and, you know, Rachel Carson and, um, and the major environmental legislation, the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act and the Endangered Species Act and uh, the National Environmental Policy Act and all of these huge, you know, cornerstone environmental statutes that are happening at that time. And um, my claim here that I'll make uh, for you is that that major bipartisan legislation in the 1970s and that flush that we have there resol resolves into a series of debates over um, what I'm going to call environmental governance, okay? Environmental governance. So how do we go about the business of actually implementing these statutes, actually governing, you know, pollution and um, 
you know, building institutions and building regulatory systems that are going to achieve our environmental goals. You know, cleaning up the air, cleaning up the water, managing, um, making sure that we're not, you know, causing an extinction of species and kind of redirecting our economy, at least in ways, in ways big and small, let's just say that, away from more environmentally harmful and towards, you know, less environmentally harmful. And toxics regulation is part of the story, of course, as well, clean up Superfund sites and so on. So anyway, so you resolve into a series of debates over environmental governance that are basically going to dominate the conversation on environmental law and policy coming into the 70s through the 80s, 90s, you know, and then, and then we start to hit this, you know, this 2003 inflection point that I'm talking about um, and, the, and the changes that, you know, I mentioned mentioned earlier, right, with the breakdown of the bipartisan consensus and the breakdown of the, um, uh, the liberal international order. But um, before we hit that breakdown, right, there's this kind of environmental governance conversation. So within that conversation, there are kind of four main topics that people are interested in discussing. So risk management, instrument choice, administrative governance, and cooperative federalism. So let me just describe these to you because what's going to happen here um, again, my claim is, is that this system of, you know, environmental governance with the conversations about risk management, instrument choice, administrative governance, and cooperative federalism, this is what's going to be reformed, right? It's going to continue to exist, and it still does continue to exist, but something else is going to get layered on top of it, and that's the reformation that we're experiencing right now with the new regime. So there's an old order, which again is going to continue to, to exist, but there's a new regime that's going to sit on top of it. So I'm just going to quickly describe these four uh, conversations just to get a feel of, of, you know, what, you know, what really dominated the conversation before the new regime. Okay. So risk management, these are questions about how to study environmental harms, how to understand them, um, and then what to do about them. Okay. So uh, the big debates are like, how to use science, the relationship between science and politics, you know, there's debates about what are called trans-scientific questions, so mixed questions of science and policy. Many of these debates revolve around cancer and the study of carcinogens, but of course, you know, they then move into debates about things like climate change. So for example, we might, a, a kind of classic example of a trans-scientific question is, what is the uh, proper dose-response curve uh, for carcinogens, certain types of carcinogens? So you have chemicals and you have to figure out what is the relationship between exposure to these chemicals and your likelihood, one's likelihood of getting cancer. And it's actually very hard to answer these questions because, um, because there's not a lot of data. Um, we often don't have uh, the data that we might want to try to answer these questions. And so maybe there's animal studies or maybe there's very limited epidemiological studies. And then we have to kind of draw inferences from uh, this limited amount of data to then make these dose response inferences. We draw these curves, dose response curves. And these dose response curves are important because they're going to inform things like how to set um, the relevant threshold. So if we're going to say workplace exposure has to be below some number, or we're going to set an, an ambient um, air quality level, you know, we're going to use these, these types of estimates, uh, these empirical estimates of the relationship between exposure to some environmental harm and then some negative outcome. 
And so there's a huge amount of discussion about this. I mean, these are hard problems. Like, how do you make these inferences? How do you separate out the kind of empirical questions from the values questions? What role should there be for politics, if any? Um, you know, th- 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 this is just very difficult. And so there's a lot of talk about the politicization of scientific institutions. And there's talk of the scientization of policy questions. And anyway, that's that's one part of the debate. Um and then another part of the debate on risk management is kind of how to set our goals. Like, what are the kind of things we're trying to achieve with environmental policy? And so these are debates about whether we should be using cost-benefit analysis and trying to maximize net benefits, or should we have other goals like trying to achieve zero risk, like eliminate environmental risk altogether, or we should have some alternative standard like feasibility, you know, reduce an environmental risk as much as possible. And again, these are debates that we have at the statutory level then agencies turn them over and courts turn them over and they kind of just, and, and we do it in the Clean Air Act context and we do it in the Clean Water Act context and we do it for different regimes. And these are just questions that we keep turning over and over during this period of time. So that's one uh, class of questions. Another class of questions is on instrument choice. So um, should we be using kind of regulation and rules and command and control style um, where we you know, say agencies have to use these kind of specific technologies or they have to achieve some level of emissions reduction or whatever? Um, so that's a more of a command and control style approach. Or should we be using things like uh, emissions fees or cap and trade systems or more kind of generally flexible market-based incentives? Um, so this is another big conversation. Lots of people are talking about this. Actually, Dick Stewart plays an important role in this conversation in an early piece where he argues in favor of um, the value of market-based mechanisms and some of the um, advantages that they have over um over command and control style approaches. And so there's debates about, yes, should we use design standards which require particular technologies basically or performance standards, so require um, a particular performance, achieve a particular environmental performance. Um, And then a big important moment in this instrument choice debate was the adoption in the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments of a big trading program, the acid rain trading program, which instead of being a regulatory command and control style approach, created a cap and trade system for, for the pollutants that cause acid rain. And what we learned um, in the subsequent years is that program was an enormous success, achieved incredible amounts of emissions reduction at quite low costs. And so that was really the program that served as a template for a lot of thinking about how we were going to address climate change. Okay, so that's the second kind of category of things that we talked a lot about during this period of time. Um, A third was questions around administrative governance. So these were like questions around um, the deference that courts were going to have to agencies. And we built up a particular structure of how courts and agencies were going to interact. So this is characterized by two big cases at the Supreme Court. One is this famous Chevron case, which established that agencies were going to get deference when they're interpreting um, the the statutes that they administer. And then there's this case State Farm that Um, kind of articulated how courts were going to use their power or their review authority under the arbitrary and capricious standard of the um, Administrative Procedure Act. And so there was this kind of mix of deference and statutory interpretation, but relatively probing review of agencies' um, decision-making process, making sure that they kind of took a look at the right stuff, that they engaged um, with the relevant science, that they uh, looked at the problem, you know, kind of through multiple lenses, that they took into account the comments and uh, concerns that were raised by external parties. So that's, um, so there was kind of a lot of conversation about that. And then also 
questions around international integration, like how are we going to work together on certain types of global problems? So the, the big important thing, really one big important thing at least that happened during this period of time was the Montreal Protocol, um, which deals with ozone depleting substances. And so this was like this huge success of the international um, order. We kind of got together, we negotiated this treaty and we really tackled what was an incredibly important problem, which was the, we were putting out um, pollutants that were gradually destroying the ozone layer, which was an incredibly dangerous thing for us to be doing. And I'm really glad that we got on top of that. So, um, and then, you know, uh, but we were thinking about other things as well with less success, um, you know, endangered species, you know, we start to global climate change obviously gets on the agenda at some point. And so that's this other question around uh, administrative governance is kind of how to think about um, dealing with some of these international issues. We turn that over in our head quite a bit. Um, can you integrate environmental concerns into the global trade regime, for example? There was a lot of conversation about that. And so in any case, that was another set of questions that arose. And then finally, um, uh, there was a lot of discussion of cooperative federalism. How should the federal government work with the states? What's the appropriate role for both of the, these different levels of governance? What should the federal government do? What should the states do? Is there a role? Do we need the states? Do we need the federal government? Most people recognize we need the federal government for some stuff at least. Um, during this process, you know, just as one example, there's a lot of um, uh, kind of back and forth over the implementation of the Clean Air Act. The states are implementing, the federal government's overseeing, there's uh, unhappiness with how that relationship's going. There's problems dealing with interstate um, interstate air pollution, problems like acid rain. And so in any case, there's just a lot of conversation about what is the appropriate role for these two. But the idea was that they were working together in this kind of cooperative, cooperative arrangement with each other, um, even if they might kind of have some different perspectives or different strengths and weaknesses. Nevertheless, there was this, this notion of kind of cooperating. Okay. So that's the old order. That's the that's the, these conversations which we will no doubt continue to have. But these are conversations that we've been having for a long time. Now the two big developments: the breakdown of the of the bipartisan coalition or any kind of bipartisan cooperation, and the breakdown of the liberal international order. Okay, that has added, let's just say, a new regime that at the very least is going to sit on top of the old regime, and it might eventually wipe away um, all, um, some parts of the old regime. So there's four different conversations that we are now kind of focused on, um, or some of the conversations have transformed um, a little bit in the new in the new world. So the the risk management conversation, uh, which was very much focused on kind of aggregating net uh, net benefits and kind of overall overall social you know well being or whatever, has moved much more to a conversation about distribution. Okay, so that's one big change. So there's a much stronger emphasis on environmental justice issues within the environmental community, like way stronger. This is a, there was actually a, a fair amount of tension between environmental justice groups and the traditional old line environmental groups um, in that kind of old order. That hasn't been altogether resolved by any stretch of the imagination, but um, there's been a lot of what you might call progress in integrating environmental justice into kind of the mainstream concerns of the mainstream environmental groups. And they certainly talk a lot more about that and it's a much bigger part of their advocacy agenda. So, so that's one. On the other hand, the folks who oppose environmental policies these days often focus on the distributional consequences as well. They're just focused on the costs. And so they talk a lot about jobs. Um, you know, that's become 
kind of the major attack line on environmental regulation is that these, certainly that was true under the Obama administration, the kind of quote unquote job killing regulations. And so, um, so both on the benefit side and on the cost side, on the advocacy side, you know, advocacy for environmental protection or the folks who are opposing environmental protection, huge emphasis on um, the distributional consequences, much less emphasis, I would say, on kind of the aggregate social effects. And then we see things like, um, you know, even a very technical issue like the, um, the, the A4 circular, which is a document that describes how um, cost benefit analysis should be done throughout the federal government. Um, and, you know, my, my frequent collaborator and friend, Ricky Rivez, who's the OIR administrator, oversaw kind of a revision of the A4 circular, uh, there's now much more discussion of distributional analysis. And that's not surprising. A lot of people have been talking about that. And there's been a lot of work in economics, environmental economics, to think about um, how we ought to um, incorporate distributional analysis into our thinking. But in any case, this reflects the broader shift of the conversation to, um, to distribution. Now, again, this isn't to say the A4 circular jettisons concern about uh, aggregate costs and benefits. That's still obviously a huge emphasis, but we've now layered on top this distributional conversation. And then in the, in the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a lot about um, environmental justice. There's a lot of spending, obviously, and a spending package is going to be about distribution. Um, and so there's, there's, there's spending and, and kind of prioritization of uh, spending and funds. Um, uh, the, and, the, and the Biden administration all has all kinds of initiatives on environmental justice that they've been working on over, over the years, over the past you know, uh, course of its administration. And so, um, so there's this really big emphasis on environmental justice um, and distribution that's kind of, like I said, layered on top of, at the very least, the, the conversation about efficiency. Okay, the, the conversation about in, instrument choice has morphed as well. So um, one, you know, basically the, what was once a conversation really that boiled down to command and control versus market incentives has really turned into a conversation about industrial policy. Um, at the very least, industrial policy has been kind of added to the mix of uh, instruments that the that we might envision the government um, doing, and or the envision the you know as as how the government kind of achieves its goals, um, and arguably it's become like the main emphasis um, of our politics is how we're going to do industrial policy, um, you know who's going to be the winners, who's going to be the losers, and what do we mean? What do I mean by industrial policy? So this just is where the government, um, rather than setting kind of like neutral rules that are at least facially neutral that are kind of generally intended to apply across the economy and that you either comply with, you know, that you, that all the economic actors are kind of supposed to go out there and figure out how to comply with. Um, and the most neutral version would be something like a carbon tax, you know, um, or a cap and trade system. So that's the uh, or kind of a regulatory approach. And industrial policy is basically like the government's going to say, this is how we want our economy to operate. We're going to spend money over here to do investments for these kinds of technologies and, you know, we're going to favor some technologies over others. We're going to, you know, build infrastructure that's going to support different kinds of technologies. It's much more kind of a hands-on managerial, managerial approach to the economy. And, you know, the thinking is that industrial policy had kind of gone out of favor um, in the, say, 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, and maybe up through, you know, fairly recently, but it's kind of come roaring back on the scene as a um, uh, as an approach to policymaking, especially within the Democratic Party. So where do we see this? So you really see the, um, the beginnings of this conversation, um, or, you know, kind of an important 
flourishing of this uh, approach with a discussion around the Green New Deal and that kind of rhetoric. And so the, that, you know, that idea that we're going to, you know, again, we're going to really use the government to achieve our economic goals, our justice goals, and our environmental goals all kind of simultaneously, basically through spending. That's the idea of the Green New Deal, more or less. And, you know, eventually that gets translated in a watered down, obviously in diminished version, into the Inflation Reduction Act. And the idea here is that we're focusing on spending rather than regulation. But there's also other important components to this. It's this not just broad spending, put money in everybody's pockets. We're obviously selecting particular parts of the economy that we want to spend on. We're doing investment in particular technologies and particular approaches. And, you know, a very important part of the IRA is there's a lot of, frankly, prote protectionism and, and kind of U.S. orientation, right? So this, of course, famously in the um, in the limitations on which automakers and uh, are going to be able to qualify for um, for tax credits and the components and the battery, where the batteries are going to come from, and all that kind of stuff. That um, it's just intended to do industrial policy in the United States. We're going to be spending money. We want it to be spent in the states. That's kind of the theory. And there's other components of this as well. Like a lot of the IRA spending has at least chunks of it, components that are intended to promote, for example, unionization or union jobs. Um, and so, you know, again, the government's kind of taking kind of a fairly strong hand to say like what our industrial arrangements should look like. Okay, so that's industrial policy. So shift for, from a conversation in instrument choice, command and control versus incentives to this conversation about how industrial policy is gonna be done. Okay, so then the third here, um, the third translation is, like I said, this question of administrative governance, like how, what's the best relationship to set up between agencies and courts and the like, um, to something that's more like anti-administration. <laughs> the courts um, have really, especially with this West Virginia v. EPA decision and others um, that are kind of um, teed up right now, in this position of very seriously dialing back um, the, at least attempting to dial back the administrative state, imposing much more um, substantial judicial controls, really acting like a gatekeeper on on any substantial um, regulatory policy. And so this is the major, the major questions doctrine where basically the court says, if we think a question is important, question of statutory interpretation, we're going to decide it. We're not going to give it the, the, any deference to the agencies. Which is a very, you know, that's, that's, that's a big move, right? So that's a big change from the deference regime before where the courts basically said, unless, you, unless your uh, interpretation like conflicted with an unambiguous statute or was kind of facially like on its face unreasonable, then we're going to let it go. Here, the court's saying, no, we're just going to like interpret it. We, whatever we think is the best is the way it's going to be. Uh, so that's a very big um, expansion of the court's powers, a very clear uh, an obvious and aggressive expansion of the court's power in the regulatory domain. And so this kind of moves decision-making away from administrative agencies out of the realm of administration and into the realm of courts. Um, and so I think you could characterize this as instead of it being about how to structure administration, this is really an anti-administration um, approach to administrative laws, really about... Um, yeah, just, just uh, dialing back the administrative state um, and moving decisions over to the courts. And then finally, uh, just this final translation of the new regime is um, the shift from cooperative federalism to um, antagonistic federalism. And other scholars have noted many of these things that I'm talking about right now, actually. Um, but in any case, the, you know, others have written about this, but just to, just to 
to explain what I'm talking about, the, um, you know, here what we're, instead of states and the federal government kind of roughly working in cooperative structure, what we have is states just like fighting with the federal government. So, you know, when the, when there's a democratic president and states are, you know, certain states, the red states are suing and making life difficult and making it, and, you know, fighting constantly with EPA and um, undermining the regulatory approach. And then of course, under Republican administrations, we just get the opposite where it's the blue states that are suing um, and fighting. And so there's just this highly antagonistic relationship between the federal government and like, you know, a bunch of states. Um, And, you know, just kind of depends who's in the White House, which states are having an antagonistic relationship with the federal government. Um, So that's one well-known area, but we also see this in, you know, fights over like siting, especially around renewable energy. So you have some states, you know, putting in all kinds of rules um, that, um, that make it difficult for, uh, for siting to happen uh, for major renewable facilities. And so this is, you know, again, uh, one way of kind of being, having an antagonistic relationship uh, vis-a-vis federal policy when, you know, of course, after the Inflation Reduction Act, the policy is to go out and spend money, build things. Um, and so states are, are uh, some states, in any case, are trying to slow that down. So, um, okay, so that's the that's the reformation. That is the change. We've we've shifted from the old regime, um, the old conversations, and we have an entirely new set of conversations. And we can see kind of how the two big shifts um, have led to some of these. Um, the two big shifts, meaning you know, breakdown of bipartisan consensus and the liberal international order, have led us uh, in this direction. So. You know, it's not surprising, for example, when you move from somewhat of a bipartisan conversation to one where like it's just one party is going to be making decisions and it's just we'll see which party it is, that there's more of an, uh, of an emphasis on distribution. You know, when it's both parties, they're in some sense looking out for the entire country, right? Not just, you know, some subset thereof. And so, you know, and, and trying to identify compromise and overlaps and so on. So, you know, an emphasis on efficiency, on kind of you know, what is good for everybody and what ag- maximizes the aggregate, you know, whatever, um, the national well-being, um, national interests. It's not surprising that that would get um, converted over into, you know, delivering for constituents, you know, either Democratic constituents or Republican Party constituents. Um, so that's just one example. And you could kind of see that uh, playing out in the in the other areas as well. To use the industrial policy, um, we'll use that as the other as the other example. And, you know, we could see how that might, you know, be part and parcel of a breakdown of conversation uh, between the parties. But that's also nicely illustrative of the breakdown of the liberal international order because, um, you know, one of the basic premises of the that liberal international order is free trade. It's, you know, it's certainly, you know, free, it's generally free market oriented. Um, and this industrial policy move really is contrary to both of those principles. So, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act outside the United States is seen by many as a hugely protectionist um, that it, you know, really de-emphasizes um, the, you know, taking advantage of the international trading system in order to kind of allocate, uh, you know, production of green technology to wherever it happens to fall in the world, wherever it's cheapest, and instead says, no, we're going to do this in the United States. And then that's just basically protectionism, whether you like it or not, um, that's, that's what's going on. And so with the U.S. as, you know, the country that has uh, uh, been the, uh, the most uh, stalwart promoter of the free trade system, then engaged in what kind of is broadly and correctly seen as, you know, kind of a protectionist 
um, orientation in its, in its environmental policy, that obviously is part and parcel of the broader decline of the liberal international order. Um, and we could tell similar stories about the, um, uh, the anti-administration, the move there and antagonistic fe federalism. But I think, I think we all kind of get the picture here, which is that these two big trends, part, bipartisan breakdown, global order breakdown are having these kind of very specific consequences for how we think about and talk about environmental policy. Okay. So I will, um, we've been at this for a while. So I will uh, talk a little bit about what I see as some of the big um, important conversations going forward in this area. And then, and then we can wrap up. So, you know, how do we navigate in this new, in this new regime? And what, what, what can we expect will be the, will be the, how conversations will play out or what are going to be some of the complications? What are some of the opportunities? So one interesting conflict that we're already seeing is going to be between renewable energy companies, the renewable energy industry and uh, the environmental community. You know, they're going to work together sometimes and they're going to have conflict with each other other times. And so one big area of this was where this comes up is on siting reform. Um, you know, changes to the National Environmental Policy Act, other changes that would be, would make life easier for the renewable power industry so they could build lots of, you know, new facilities, but there's going to be resistance by the environmental community, by the environmental justice community. So that's just one fight. Another fight is on like, say, nuclear power, for example. You know, do we want nuclear power? Do we not want nuclear power? Um, is this part of the energy mix going forward and so on? You have to cite transmission lines and, you know, all of the stuff that we need to do to address climate change is going to come with local environmental impacts. And if these decisions are kind of just going to be made via industrial policy, we can, we can imagine that there's going to be conflict within that, within the democratic coalition on these issues. So this is kind of a way of thinking about um, conflict, intra-party conflict that we're going to see um, in the new regime. It's going to, a lot about, you know, development um, versus traditional environmental concerns. Um, so what about intra-party uh, conflict on the other side, on the Republican side? So, you know, there is a problem that the Republicans face on these issues, which is environmental protection remains pretty popular, um, even if it's not a Republican priority. And if, even if they try to, you know, some policy entrepreneurs try to undermine that uh, popularity, it, it, there's still a base idea that the clean air is a good thing. Um, climate change is happening. It's going to get more intense over time. And um, that's not um, a good thing for the world, but it's certainly not a good thing if your political party is structured around denying that, that reality. Um, and, you know, there's generational shifts. Obviously, young people are, um, are more engaged on issues around climate change, and, you know, that's likely to intensify. And this is against the backdrop of the Republican Party having an extremely difficult time building something like a national democratic majority. I mean, basically, um, one popular vote has been won by a Republican presidential candidate, um, since I guess the last, so you had 1988 when George H.W. Bush won. And then since then, his son won, his second one, his, his first son, George W. Bush won his second race, right? In 2004, he won the popular vote. Um, other than that, the, the Republicans have not won the popular vote. Um, and that's a long time. And so um, the only way for the Republican Party to remain in power is basically by, you know, 
the luck of the electoral college and gerrymandering and all that kind of stuff. And that, that's just not sustainable. That's not sustainable over the long term. And so somehow um, some effort is going to have to get made to um, expand the attractiveness of the, of the party's platform. So how's that going to work? And how's it going to fit in with the, the other ways that the Republican Party is changing? Uh, you know, who knows? That's anyone's guess. But um, you can imagine some things like um, there's certain environmental policies, even climate policies that could fit in with like an anti-globalization kind of arguments um, that the party that's have kind of favor in the party these days. So these are things like trade barriers, you know, carbon border adjustments and the like. Um, you can imagine a carbon tax and dividend being framed as an, uh, as a way of reducing immigration, right? Because if you dividend money to say us citizens or, um, green card holders or whatever, um, and you raise electricity prices and raise the price of goods through a carbon tax, um, you know, that would likely have, um, the effect of reducing the, certainly the economic incentive to, um, to migrate to the U S. So, um, so in any case, who knows what, um, what's, what's going to happen, but it does seem like there are, there's room for inter intra-party conflict on the Republican side, you know, trying to figure out how to expand the, um, uh, the base of the party. And, you know, and this is likely going to play out, um, when the party figures out what it's going to do post, post Trump. Um, you know, at the international level, this is kind of worth thinking about. So, um, you know, if we have a breakdown of the international order, we have, if not disintegration of the global trading system, we might worry about, you know, the uh, uh, renewed competition for energy. I mean, we're already seeing this, obviously, um, with conflict over, over Ukraine and Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the response in Europe, you know, having to deal with, you know, changing its energy supplies. Um, the U.S. energy the explosion of fossil fuel production in the United States is now kind of broadly understood as a strategic asset, not just kind of a nice thing to have, but part of the geo kind of political situation. Um, and so all of that is disconcerting, right? Because it, it really promotes um, continued reliance on fossil fuels and building these strategic relationships and, um, and, and it can make it difficult to wean ourselves off of these um, off of these sources. On the other hand, you might hope um, that uh, you know, with the growth of renewables, maybe with maybe nuclear, maybe storage, all of this is also seen as an energy energy independence move. Um, of course, that's going to create issues around things like rare earth elements, um, and so you you'll probably expect to see you know continued growth um, on all energy sources. That's not good news um, in a sense because. Uh, it's good in as much as we're relying on green sources and low carbon sources, but um, we're not going to make progress on climate change if we continue to build uh, uh, fossil infrastructure and burn fossil fuels. And so the, the kind of geopolitical dynamics around energy um, are going to seem to be intensifying and getting and, and making making cooperation very difficult. Also just generally building international institutions, the kinds of international institutions that we would need to construct and enforce a really serious climate change regime. Uh, it's just very difficult when countries are like fight, fighting wars with each other. Like how are you gonna have a, um, a constructive conversation about reducing your greenhouse gas emissions when you're like literally dropping bombs on each other? So, um, so that's a challenge no doubt about it, um, that we're going to face in the coming years. 
Okay, so just to just to kind of wrap up this uh, this conversation, it's a bit of a downer, but it, at the same time, it's a, I mean, it's a difficult time. Um, there's no, it's good to just confront that and just recognize um, uh, the, the challenges we face. It is not clear, frankly, from where I sit, um, how we're going to make progress in the um, in the coming years. You know, we face global challenges on environmental issues, and they seem to require international uh, cooperation. The institutions for that cooperation are not nearly as robust um, as they um, seem to have been. And, you know, I think we're still in the process of figuring out what, if any, new institutions or, you know, same institutions in slightly different form, um, what that's all going to look like. And then obviously, if we can't, um, if we can't get our act together at the domestic level, especially in the United States, then, um, you know, it's just hard to imagine uh, how progress is going to be made. And especially as we, you know, we see this kind of growth of right-wingism, populism, anti-globalization around the world, you know, how the, all that translates into something like a sensible, you know, set of, you know, <laughs> policies on climate change, for example, is, uh, is a little difficult. But on the other hand, the th uh, another lesson, I think, when I think back to uh, 2003, is that nothing lasts forever. Um, you know, when you, when I cast my mind back to 2003, it seemed at the time, like we had a clear picture of the future direction of things. We, it seemed like, you know, there was a, there was a lot of agreement about where the world was going and what the challenges were going to be. And basically everybody was totally wrong. Uh, maybe a handful of people may have predicted, um, um, you know, what we ended up seeing, but there's always doomsayers. And so um, they'll be right some of the time in any case. But generally speaking, the consensus view was was just off. Um, it just, there was a lot of devel many developments that were not anticipated. And I, you know, I don't know what the future holds, but I strongly suspect that um, whatever I think now is probably wrong. Um, there are gonna be developments, both good and bad. They're gonna shift the landscape just as you know, developments over the last 20 years have shifted the landscape. So we are in a particular moment, the moment that I just described. I think the new regime, the reformation is real. We really have built a new set of conversations that we are likely to turn over for some time. Anyway, that would be my view. I think that that's, that, I think that's right. I think that we will be turning over this, you know, these newly inflected conversations about environmental law and policy, but it's going to break down. Um, there's going to be another reformation. There's going to be other changes that are on the horizon. And so um, the kind of the current, what can seem like the an impasse right now uh, is not going to last forever. Maybe there'll be a different impasse, but there might also be a breakthrough as well. And so that's the end of the, of the year message. Um, it's not exactly optimistic in the sense that it's just kind of like things are bad, but they're probably going to, they're going to change. <laughs> things are not great in any case um, in this, in this domain, but you know, what looked like a dawn turned out to be a twilight and maybe what looks at, looks like a twilight now will turn out to be a dawn and that only time will tell. So uh, thanks very much for listening. If you've made it this far on the podcast, um, consider joining uh, uh, Patreon as a member if you, if, you, um, if you find value in these podcasts and want them to continue. And generally, um, best wishes for an end of 2023 and a prosperous and hopefully more peaceful 2024.